This program is brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu. This is what I suggest that we do. Um, uh, I suggest that we divide predictably into three groups. One, uh, and I'll, I'll suggest logistics. I suggest that those groups spend 30 minutes, no more, no less, 30 minutes discussing with a view to making some form of collective presentation that addresses the question that I asked. And then we'll just take it in three blocks, going through in the order they were there. The European one, then the Hong Kong, then the Bilbao. Does that make sense? Will you remind us what the questions you asked? Uh, yeah, I will. Um, um, uh, well, somebody else can remind me. The, um, the European one is, is there a Europe European cultural policy? If not, should there be? Uh, Hong Kong, I think, was what are the criteria? What are the means and ends of cultural policy? Yeah, what are the means and ends of cultural policy? And I hope you notice that on the, right, uh, uh, the right-hand side of, the, um, of the, the second reference, there were a series of click-throughs if you wanted them to, to uh, government documents. Um, um, and the Bilbao was, I think, just what were the, what were the, um, what, what was the Bilbao question? What was the success, yeah, what were the critical success factors for the Bilbao? Um, uh, Bilbao is, uh, and, and the two, one of the articles was there and the other one was something I did for the art newspaper, which I think is up on the site. So, to you guys, uh, what's the, um, what's the key to Gil, Bil, Bilbao's success? It appears to be universally acclaimed. Um, uh, and so I guess our question is, um, what is the nature of the success story and what are the critical success factors? And assume, just give enough of you know, what Bilbao is so that people who haven't read those case studies or those articles have got some sense of it. Bilbao, city in northern Spain, in Basque country, um, in the mid-90s, um, construction on a friend Geary design, very, very large. Kugenheim Museum began. At the same time, the city invested in um, cleaning up the river that ran through the city, um, making the, investing in infrastructure to clean up the streets and make the city nicer looking. Uh, new transportation uh, with a new subway system, uh, new, uh, newer hotels, and a couple other kind of modern architect looking buildings. There, uh, the goals of the, pro of the whole revitalization product of which the Guggenheim was the centerpiece were uh, stated as enhancing the regional cultural offer, creating a regional identity, increasing the region's attraction for people and business, and generating a social and political climate open to innovation and change in regional governance and politics. Uh, the long article we read said that they tried to measure all these effects. They interviewed many, many people, and they said that um, locals uh, had a better view of where they lived. They had a more positive view, but it, they couldn't measure it. There was no direct way to measure the, the impact on people's lives and or relate it to, directly to the museum and not to the redevelopment process as a whole. Uh, they did measure increase in tourism, uh, but it seemed to be limited to tourism. Uh, 
there were increased services relating around tourism, but they hadn't seen any growth in art schools, artists moving to the community, um, and again, there was, there was no way to directly say that the museum was the sole key to this revitalization. Well, hang on, isn't that a straw man, in a sense? You're setting up the museum as the key, but Bill Bow, as a strategy, never said, never suggested that um, it would just be the museum that drove all this, did no, they? I'm trying to say what the, that the paper was, it was interesting in the long paper said, I guess the story here is that um, you can't just do it with the museum. And uh, one well-known scholar wrote a paper and said that there were five keys <laughs> to um, the Bilbao effect. Um, and number one, if you wanted to repeat it, said that um, the museum had to be part of a whole. It could be the biggest part, but there had to be a whole. It, it couldn't do it by itself. Um, there had to be continual funding. The town of Bilbao provides, or city, provides operating income, revenue, and an acquisitions budget for the museum and has for over 10 years. Um, it also noted that the Bilbao is located very close to the traditional target audience for Western contemporary art, a predominantly white, affluent, um, highly educated population that has access to cheap transportation. It also said that Bilbao was uh, one of the keys to success was it was the first mover. It was the first big, fancy looking building that looked like a spaceship in wrecked. Um, and that with every new building that looks like another wrecked spaceship, it kind of loses its effect. Um, and five, it was an area that had a strong regional identity and they kind of say that the, the Bilbao Museum has kind of become like the poster child in a way that the Sydney Opera House as you see it and you know what area you're looking at. You see the Bilbao and you know that you're in Basque Country, Northern Spain. Okay. Um, so it sounds replicable. Uh, given, yeah, close to a highly affluent, educated market that wants art and funding, and I don't think it's replicable everywhere, as you stated. Yeah, but, uh, um, okay, questions? Because of what? Because of the nationalism. But another area with a strong regional identity that had politicians that wanted to promote a cultural scene could replicate it if they had funding for other developments, projects around town. I think that's the problem, though. It's such a part of a larger, like, in, like very well orchestrated focus initiative where everyone sort of buys into it, you know, transportation, everything, that I think there, people are trying to replicate it and can't get an entire city or something to agree on sort of revitalizing the entire city. They just think that, like, 
Right. I can't remember what date was that article. I remember it was, it was two thousand. Like right. So, so well, it's the tenth. It's what? It's only eleven years ago. So, um, I mean, I guess the uh, so opened in ninety-seven. I mean, the only thing I would suggest is, and it's something we talked about last week, the effects always take longer. To, um, uh, to come than anybody wants to admit to at the inception of these projects. So if that was printed, if that was published five years after, then they were looking for pretty rapid results in terms of, you know, the fine-grained um, interstitial development of the city. So, so they may be a bit, you know, they may be a little hasty to judge. Yeah. Um, I remember uh, uh, I took a gang of people to Bilbao, I don't know, about, nine, about two or three years after it opened, and we had the privilege of talking to the Basque Minister of Culture, who had been um, in the cabinet who, that had made the decision to go ahead. And he described, you know, probably, you know, it's the sort of anecdote that probably became, you know, he probably told it about 10 times a day and it had become very polished. But his anecdote was basically that uh, when it came to the cabinet decision uh, to put the money into um, uh, the money into the Guggenheim, he had pointed out that the total cost of the investment was less than two kilo kilometers of highway. What? One. One kilometer of highway. Um, oh, was that in that article? Yeah. Oh, yeah? Okay, yeah, I'd forgotten it was in that article. Yeah. And, um, uh, and that had been, it, it had been the, as it were, you're getting all this for the same price as a kilometer of highway that had basically you know, um, uh, convinced otherwise skeptical colleagues. But I have to say that you know, w the level of political commitment is very high because they remain um, uh, funding the operating budget of that museum to today. Um, uh, and there has never been, I think, any suggestion of uh, anything other than a, an unequivocal commitment to revenue funding. 
if you contrast that with some of the larger troubled projects uh, where you know the premise has been that somehow this thing will, after a few years, get away without revenue sub uh, uh, subsidy. We were talking about Kimmel being an obvious example of that, where the, the, the city you know, committed, committed to help make the thing happen, but didn't commit to operate it. Um, uh, you know, it is seen as an ongoing commitment by Bilbao and by, the, um, by um, the Basque country. And I think that makes a hell of a difference, because it means that they can plan with conviction. Um, it's interesting. And in some ways, I think that Bilbao, um, and if, if you work with the Guggenheim, you, you can tell me whether, whether you think this is wrong. But in some ways, I think Bilbao was much, much more strategic than the Guggenheim. When the Guggenheim um, uh, had a success with Bilbao, uh, I remember about five years ago when they were trying to build a similar building by a similar architect downtown, um, uh, i.e. a Geary-built um, uh, annex downtown here in the city. The politicians in Bilbao were infuriated. And the reason that they were infuriated is why would anybody jump on a plane and fly to Bilbao if they can go to downtown New York and see the same building? And uh, it really damaged relationships between the Bilbao and Guggenheim. I mean, I'm sure they're repaired simply because Bilbao couldn't understand what the hell the Guggenheim were doing strategically when they were, in effect, cannibalizing their own base of success. And I think that that's, um, you know, I think, I, I think that your point, which is, you know, there are unique conditions is very true. But one of the unique conditions is, is determined political leadership. And, you know, if there is a critical success factor that we haven't talked about in this, it's determined uh, uh, um, and con uh, uh, determined consensus, if you like, within the political leadership about the priority afforded to the project. Um, other observations on Bilbao. So where, where, are there any places that approximately replicate? In other words, you know, as, as you draw on your own experience, can you think of other um, places where something similar, or I mean, is it, is it unique at the moment, or are there other, you know, approximate parallels? I mean, the world looks at it and says, gosh, you know, can we do that? Uh, you mean, do they go to see specific exhibitions? Or do they have any idea what is in the museum? One well, thing they did say was yeah. that the exhibitions and the collection didn't tend to be Basque-specific. No, they're part of the touring agenda. Yeah. And, and that's an interesting um, sort of conundrum in a way, because the Guggenheim model is basically to cu curate from Fifth Avenue. And I, th I suspect that one of, the, um, uh, one of the issues is the extent to which, as it were, that's seen as a curatorial policy that is sensitive or not to, to local conditions, to local needs, etc. But as I remember, there is currently a second project underway with a relationship between the Guggenheim and the Basque government for uh, a, um, uh, an artist's, um, it's about, 10 miles outside Bilbao, I, don't, I can't remember the details, but it's much more Basque-based. Uh, I think it's an education project, uh, arts and education, 
uh, with workshops and, and things for local artists. Did when they I have an acquisitions budget funded by the Basque by the Basque government for and they said most of the, the the new acquisitions represent kind of a Basque taste. Um, I mean, it's an interesting. When I went to see when when I went there, and I've only been there once. When I went there, it was an exhibition of Chinese miniatures, and it looked ridiculous. <laughs> in other words. Um, uh, in, the, in the big gallery, there were, there were Sarahs. There were big, hunking Sarahs. They looked fantastic. Um, but the space is a space which basically craves large, um, dramatic, contemporary pieces. And if you put you know, small, um, uh, you know, exquisite objects in it, then they are sort of lost in the space. It's a very sort of, it's, it's a space that invites a particular, you know, a particular form of, uh, form of art. But there's no doubt that you know at least half the experience is simply the sheer visceral physicality of the building. But it's not just the exterior, it's the interior too. In other words, the interior is a spectacular interior and it tends to overwhelm some objects. Some objects look fantastic in it, but some objects are overwhelmed by it, which is obviously the great challenge of strong contemporary architecture. If you look at a lot of the more successful uh, the buildings that are regarded, the contemporary buildings that are regarded as successful by curators, you find that they often have spectacular outsides, but extremely conventional insides. Um, in other words, the insides are res more recessive and, don't, and tend not to dominate the art. Yeah. yeah. Really? And because Yuba is like the center of the gastronomy right. of that area, Europe. And, uh, um, and from Bilbao, other cities in the region have also, as it were, um, developed complementary strategies, like San Sebastian, I think. And um, there's a great performing arts center now by Rafael Maneo in, um, in San Sebastian, I think. Um, uh, uh, right on the right on the coast, and then there's Chile. There is it, um, uh, sculpture park, and there's uh, you know there's the, there's a sort of you know a cultural tourist route that is that's developed in the area, which is I think you know um, part of the extended strategy for the you know for for uh, a cultural strategy for the Basque Country. So it's not even Bilbao alone; it's a larger strategy, uh, and clearly they. Rather than competing, they're complementing one another because they create a series of destinations. At least that—that's the idea. But but this is a case, Brazilia, where you know they cut down on the Amazon. It's it's like you landed on Mars. I've never been there. I've only seen pictures of it. Oscar Niemeyer did his thing, like fifteen buildings, and you don't know where you are. Right, but is it? Um, uh, and it's the administrative. It's Brasilia. It's the administrative capital of Brazil. But it's not exactly humming, is it? It's a sort of weird, um, eccentric. Um, well, mind you, that, that was the same as Washington. Washington was built as an administrative act of will in an inhospitable climate. But, you know, a couple of hundred years later, who knows? But in a more temporary way, I mean, what's, it's the same story with the cultural capital of Europe and the, we're going to have an expo here. I mean, that's, I think, a temporarily culturally led. Right, but my question, my question was which ones endure? In other words, my question is if, you know, I had a go, you've had a go at what the success factors were, um, and they are, you know, they're pretty demanding conditions to meet. In other words, it's not like, oh yeah, that's easy enough. But 
I'm just, which, which means that a successful, culturally-driven regeneration strategy is an ambitious thing to succeed at. When you succeed, you succeed big time. But my question is, are there, you know, can, other examples? Yeah, I think that there is a city called Kanazawa in Japan. Kanazawa. Kanazawa is considered a little Kyoto in Japan. But it's very remotely located facing the Japan Sea. And then, but they, they are known for their very traditional crafts, like a lacquerware and then uh, carving. And then they have a history of hundreds of year old, uh, very old Japanese ancient history. However, that they built this uh, 21st century museum, which features contemporary art. And then it was designed by Sana, which just received the Prisca Award, yeah. the best award uh, in architecture. Yeah. So it's a spectacular building. So just again, you know, the people from all over the world, interested in architecture and art, come to um, this area. And Kanazawa City, and Kanazawa City, before the museum was built, uh, or contemporary museum was built, uh, there's a beautiful Japanese garden which was built uh, like 300 years ago. And that was the best tourist spot. But the right next to the garden, they built this spectacular uh, contemporary looking museum. So now they also uh, uh, built the uh, artist village where they can uh, they have like potters and lacquerwares. And so people do not just come to see uh, artworks in a museum, but they can go to this village and they can experience crafts making. And they have become very successful. Um, and the city is behind all of this, and they know that they can only sell culture. The city is always known for culture, but only in traditional sense. But now they are also supporting contemporary. They hold symposiums of culture and design. So it's a very not, it's much more harder to get to Kanazawa than Bilbao. Because the, it's um, no, no trains go there, and then fly and they come back by bus and but it's a very well done. Kind of done. I think another example could be in the city of Kent in Belgium. Maybe I'm a little biased. <laughs> but I think in the last fifteen years they've really made it a strategic priority of the cultural council of the city and they've used um, for example the, the jazz festival and the festival over the summer really as a driver of cultural creativity. And they've used other organizations that were around, and they've really given them the funding so that they could reconstruct uh, the buildings, get new seats. It was like a 10, 15 year campaign. They redid the opera houses, and they really have been trying to involve the younger communities. And through all the different elements coming in place on different times in the last 15 years, it's been actually really successful. They have over, I think it's a million people a day in Ghent, which is like, literally the size of like the West Village. And it's super crowded and they have artists from all over the world. They have a new festival now. It's just, it's really interesting how they've made that work and they've tried to replicate that in other cities in Belgium. Not as successfully, like they've tried to really culturally stimulate Antwerp and Brussels and Geneva. For some reason, Ghent has worked because all of those festivals and all of the theaters were already in place, whereas so some existing infrastructure to exactly. build on. Exactly, and they just really built on it, making it a almost a celebration of Belgian culture. And that's where it's different. Like, it's it's where you go because you just want to see the local new bands and you want to hear X, Y, and Z. And you have, you have the external big jazz artists coming in and other big acts coming in. 
coming in, but it's still very localized, whereas in Brussels, it's very far removed from a personal experience. Yeah. I'm also thinking of Santa Fe, not as a, a renewal project, but more as a being able to continually leverage and grow a small art reputation that it already had. Um, George O'Keefe being there, but they've also built a really large scale contemporary art museum that now has a biennial. Site Santa Fe. Exactly. Uh, there's a art education, specifically photography, the Santa Fe workshops. So they have education, there's lots of galleries, there's you know, the world's largest photography bookstores based out of Santa Fe. Santa Fe Opera? Mm -hmm. That one too. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm thinking of, there's a few places I can think of that has successfully grown their art brand? So, are these, all are, the, are these all tourism strategies? Well, I think in, in Santa Fe, the interesting thing they have is they have a lot of artists there. Well, and the Native arts. Native American Yeah, and, and because it's there, not imported from right. Fifth Avenue, people want to go there. A and it's really pretty. This one's more about tourism, not about like preserving regular culture, but the examples we were talking about when we talked about like cultural uses of Fast Mocha or Diapique are sort of similar to Bilbao, I think, except that they're on a more, I guess, on a smaller scale. But people go specifically to North Adams to see Fast Mocha from areas not, they're not, they don't live there, and that Fast Mocha has caused some of the other things, and there's like the theater Right. I would agree, but I would also suggest that the jury is out on them as as um, instruments of success of of long-term regeneration because they're too new and because they although in the immediate vicinity of the buildings of Deer Beacon actually not really yet even that Deer Beacon but of Mass Mocha in North Adams there is some ancillary development they have not yet changed the character of 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 those communities or really their industrial base so um, you know, there's still very high un unemployment in those cities. Um, uh, there's still a lot of um, uh, undeveloped um, uh, derelict buildings in the immediate vicinity. It's as if they're sort of, you know, they, in artistic terms, they're very interesting, but in urban redevelopment terms, I'd say the jury was still out. Somebody mentioned Austin. In, is somebody, who, who, who did the piece on Austin? Go, yeah. So isn't, I mean, doesn't Austin yeah, need all these criteria? About, well, I didn't. I don't know if it's about regenerate. Like, I wasn't sure if we're just talking about regeneration, or I think Austin would fit more the model that Thomas was just talking about with Santa Fe. Um, I mean, Austin. But it's got a depth and a plurality and a and, and a it, longevity it about the model. Right, but I think here's the thing about Austin. I get or one of the things. One, um, I don't know that they were necessarily known that well for their culture some decade, several decades ago the way Santa Fe, I think, has been for a long time. I think they were known as the live music capital of the world. Right. Um, which is Well, hang on. That's fitting. not to be sneered at. No, it's not. It's not, actually. <laughs> and I think um, uh, it's actually you know, pretty impressive how much that music there is all, all the time. But I think that over the last few decades, other industries have become more, um, have grown such as, um, well, definitely the film industry is a biggie. Um, and then um, there's also dance and theater, although they are, you know, not as um, prominent as the film industry and the music industry there. Um, 
and you've got the university turning out. Yeah, you actually have, and that's the thing. So you've got a highly educated workforce. Which are three universities that award degrees in, in the arts. Um, yeah, and then you've also got, uh, you also have video game industry. Um, so which, create uh, tech startups. It's high, yeah. high tech, yeah, it like merges the video game industry, kind of merges the, the art, you know, traditional artists with the high tech industry that's been booming. So I guess one of the things is that I think over the last few decades, they, all these, I guess, especially in the last, probably 10 years, 10 to 15 years especially, Austin has become known more as a cultural um, bright spot, I guess you could say. Um, but I think then, it's brighter because it's right next door to places that are so dim. But those places <laughs> What do you mean? Culturally. Well, but here's the thing. But Sorry. No offense, <laughs> but you haven't been anywhere yeah. else in Texas. I've been to the airports. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And granted, and Helena knows something about Austin because I showed her around Austin for spring break. Um, so, but actually, um, Houston and Dallas, which are the two, two of the larger cities in Texas, <coughs> which are you're familiar with, have um, really, um, I guess, um, pretty strong cultural districts that are really known for their museums. There's somebody here. Who's, 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 who's Fort Worth? Who's the Fort Worth writer? Oh, you're Fort Worth too. Of course you are. Yeah. Oh my God. All right, you're you're um. Okay, you're done. All right. But like, but they don't. It's not. Uh, I mean, they do. So I don't. I don't know about the the dim. I mean, maybe abroad it seems that way, but that's not. I mean, anyone who's been to um, Dallas and and the Dallas area and Houston, they're, they're much more of I think sort of ivory tower types of. Um, as cultural institutions in those cities. Um, I think one thing that I think has really helped Austin actually be, be more on the map is one of those things that it, it's the South by Southwest Film Music and Interactive um, Festival, which is um, I think was 20 years old this this year. Yeah. Um, and um, the thing is, uh, what I was going to say is, I'm not sure how much of yep. an actual plan the Austin. Um, I guess leaders, civic leaders, really had in mind until more recently. And I think that when, and then more in the last seven or eight years, you know, the Austin City Limits Music Festival, which is one of these huge three-day music festivals, you know, where there are tents all over the place. And thousands and thousands of people come to attend both of these. I think the South by Southwest attracts over 100,000 people every year for a week and a half. And then um, the it's, it's actually, about that much or more, I think, for the uh, ACL Fest. Um, so I think that also actually was not driven by the city. It's actually driven by a for-profit. It's actually Lance Armstrong's agents, their company, Capital Sports and Entertainment. They wanted, they had the idea, and they went to this um, little nonprofit but world-renowned um, television show, the Austin City Limits music show, which broadcasts around the world every week and has since, I think, the late 60s or the 70s and said, so, how about we do this? Can you use your brand, which is known around the world, but we'll produce everything. And we'd like to do it in the gorgeous Zilfer Park, which is just south of the river that runs through the city. And so I think basically they went to the city and said, so, we have this great idea. Can we do it in the park? And the city was like, what? You'll bring how many thousands of people, tourists to the city? Absolutely, you can do it. And I think that it was something that sort of fell into the laps of the city. But then they pounced on it, and then they really, like, so, so there, it's worth making a distinction in all this between the conditions for success and then, as it were, the levers or the, or the instruments of success. In other words, it's clear that it helps having a, you know, 
uh, highly educated um, uh, uh, knowledge workers in Austin. Um, uh, it helps that there are various cultural traditions to, to build on. Uh, it helps that there is, you know, um, that it's already got a certain sort of set of brand connotations. But then at some point, they are, as it were, consolidated and act up acted upon strategically. And I, you know, and I think that that's the same in, you know, there has to be something to work with, but then there's got to be something intelligent working on it. Um, uh, and Bilbao is exactly the same. In other words, Bilbao has got, you know, the conditions of a strong, articulated, um, uh, self-aware culture um, uh, you know, source of regional slash national pride, um, uh, uh, strong cultural traditions, etc. And then there are the levers. And in the case of um, uh, in the case of Bilbao, a lot of those levers were capital investment in one form or another. In the case of Austin, they are not necessarily capital investment. They're all they're mostly based on festival-based um, uh, brand building, if you like, or activity building. But um, but it's clear that you know it's it's clear that if you've just got the levers and you don't have the conditions, you're probably gonna you know your wheels are gonna be spinning. And I think that what um, you know uh, what cities contemplating culturally led strategies have to be more very realistic about is do we have the basic conditions there that a strategy will have some purchase on. Okay, any other Bill Bow? Yeah. I mean, Austin really? seems to have become quite a conference city, you know, too, that I would go to in October coming up. Which, was it, which is the chicken and which is the egg there? Um, oh, well, I, uh, the, I think more and more conferences. Well, I've, in all my 30 question. years of going to conferences, I've never been to Austin. Okay, yeah. Well, so, so Austin was kind of uh, a destination for some conferences already um, because uh, not necessarily because of the cultural aspect although it was nice to be able to say you can walk out and go into almost any bar or club or restaurant and catch live music it doesn't matter if it's a Tuesday at 8 p.m. or you know whatever um, but but because it's a nice climate unlike a lot of Texas um, and uh, it's, there are lakes and rivers and hills and things, and it's kind of different from a lot of the rest of Texas and, and the area. So I think that was a draw. Although one thing that um, didn't help is that Austin's difficult to, to reach um, because yeah, it's not for, a hub like Dallas or Houston, right? It's actually not a great thing. So it's because I think then of, of this booming cultural you know, vitality, I guess, that now so many more um, conferences go there, and um, in the last decade, actually, I can't remember now, 13 years, um, but within the last decade, um, we built a new convention center, renovated a new brand new uh, convention center, which is packed like a lot of days of the year, and I think you're right, it's, it's happened more recently in the last 10, 10 years or so. Okay, break. Uh, the questions were, I think, um, what are the ends of cultural policy in Hong Kong? What are the means and what, does what would success look like for cultural policy in Hong Kong? Um, and there's no one here from Hong Kong, correct? So none of us know what we're talking about. I worked, for, I worked in Hong Kong on cultural policy for about two, two fascinating, intense months, but it's still a complicated area. Go. Um. I think that the 
do not match the needs of the policy. I think that's what we decided. Um, and that one of the, well, where do we start? Um, <laughs> I think they want to create some sort of vibrant cultural community. Um, all of their descriptions. I'm going to call that VCC for short. I'm not going <laughs> to okay, adopt VCC. that generally, but it's useful. Actually, short I don't language. know if that is one of their ends. Um, it yeah. Seems it seems like everything is extremely vague. Um, they want things that are community-driven, yet there is no discussion or very little discussion about the artists or the existing local groups that are there. So the question is... Okay, before the critique, okay? Okay, okay. Let, right, let, okay. Let's, let's get, before we sort of lay into it, let's, let's just have a go at sort of... Um, Okay, so they want to build this new huge art center. All right, so clearly part. And it's, yeah. it's capital, right? Right, okay. So, policy. So, so, so one of the things they want to do is build something called the West Kowloon, cultural the West Kowloon Cultural District. Right. It's only one thing, but yeah, what is it? I mean, we talked a bit about it's Did a, we talk about it the other day? I'm losing yeah. track of things. We did, yeah. Well, it's a big. I'm losing my marbles. Right. Empty space on the Chinese side of the harbor that's a little bit out of the mainstream area. And um, <coughs> not a lot of people from Hong Kong Island cross over to Kowloon side as it is now. So the questions would be, how would they structure that to create transportation hubs so that people wouldn't have that? Okay, so so one so one thing is West Kowloon Cultural District. So that's a means. That's a thing. Yeah. What's the, why? Why do they want to do that? I think part of it is global competition, especially All right. with Singapore. All right. So I mean, so so there's a, there's there's a bit of um, uh, uh, clearly one one element is um, uh, about symbolism or branding the city. Right. right. Branding, yeah, branding sounds too crass. It's probably the wrong. Identity sounds better. Branding sounds like you spray it on. There's something, it may be sprayed on, it doesn't need to be. Um, uh, branding, identity is clearly one thing. Compet you know, uh, uh, competitive advantage in what? In, in cultural tourism, presumably. Right, gateway of some sort, some sort of um, uh, bridge, which is the strategic positioning of Hong Kong very much, a bridge between East and West. All right. Anything else they're trying to do with it? Right. Um, That's the thing that's a little complicated, is like their cultural policy, their like statement does, is not necessarily about this. Even. Really important. This is only one thing. There's also a, you know, the, there's a broader cultural industries strategy, which if you, um, I didn't do it, but you've, you guys are all Google friendly. If you just put in Hong Kong cultural industry strategy, bang, it will come up. 
I mean, I think there's a link through on there somewhere. But um, uh, and what's that is not specifically about West Kowloon. That is about the cr cultural and creative industries uh, and their importance to West uh, to uh, Hong Kong more generally as part of its wider economic base. And it's about how do you turn, uh, how do you ensure that Hong Kong has a vital creative industries base in fashion, in design, in textiles, in, um, uh, and how, what's the relationship between all the massive manufacturing base, uh, particularly in, uh, in the new, new territories and beyond, and uh, how does Hong Kong ensure that it adds value? So there's this, you know, part of it is an industrial strategy of some sort, clearly, too. Okay. What else is going on? What about just the conventional arts community in Hong Kong? Okay. And also what happens when the existing organizations grow their budgets beyond the government funding and there is very little corporate or individual philanthropy for the arts. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. I mean, one of, one of the interesting things, um, one of the interesting things that struck me in Hong Kong was um, just how utterly vigorous and outspoken debate was around the allocation of resources between organizations. It's ferocious. And that sort of polemic that I put in as one of those, you know, it, it, was, a, it was a fairly sort of, um, it was not exactly a piece of dispassionate policy analysis. It was an aggressive polemic. But it's a typical of the level of aggressive debate in Hong Kong constantly um, around um, uh, around um, uh, who's in and who's out and, and who's receiving funding and who's not. Uh, why is that? I mean, because it's related to the larger politics of the position of Hong Kong vis-a-vis -vis mainland China and Hong Kong vis-a-vis -vis, um, uh, uh, the West. I think there's very little advocacy in town um, in support of the arts as an important part of town. It's a, it's a finance-based city. There's shopping. I mean, yep. I think that's part of it, is that there isn't a positive dialogue around the arts. It's very scandal-driven, like everything in the press is, ooh, did you hear that happen? It's so negative. How about the fact that you know we had a wonderful art exhibit or a great concert or something, or some local artists when you say it's scandal-driven, there's another word for that. It's highly politicized. Okay. Yeah? I mean, is, yeah, that what you, is that what you mean? That's, that's part of it. Um, I part mean, I agree with you. I think yeah. it's absolutely right. But I mean, it's, it, it, it's, it, it's the, the politics of culture seems to be as important as culture itself. Mm -hmm. yeah. Can I ask kind of a background question? Yeah. The, the culture that we're talking about, is this traditional Western culture? Or are we talking about traditional Chinese culture? Because I would think in Hong Kong, we've got 
maybe strong factions of both, and I'm absolutely unclear is, is who's getting the support and who's not. Well, I, I, the answer is within each art form, within traditional uh, uh, Chinese art forms, and uh, other people feel free to heckle because there are other people here you know, just as much as me. I'm a cultural tourist in this context, but um, uh, within both art forms, uh, there are the government as it were, um, uh, funded, and the outsiders. So it's not the case that, as it were, Chinese culture is insider and uh, you know, the symphony orchestra is outsider. It's that there is a symphony orchestra, Chinese opera, um, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, traditional theater, etc. Um, uh, and there are, there are Arts Council funded organizations, and superficially it looks pretty much like, say, a, a, you know, a, what we call the social democratic system. There's an Arts Council, Hong Kong Arts Council, Hong Kong Arts Council funds those organizations. Um, and then there is, um, and then there is a, as it were, another independent community um, uh, who feel disenfranchised in various ways um, and who um, feel that uh, uh, a lot of this is not likely to be about them. So would it be fair to say that West Calhoun Cultural District is really more of a traditional Chinese-centered culture? No, <coughs> no. Um, if you look at the brief, I can't remember how many buildings the brief's for, but the brief covers both. Um, the, the brief has provision for infrastructure for pretty well every art form you ever can think of okay. in one form or another, both traditional um, Chinese through to Cantonese pop through to um, through to you know one question is whether or not th there's a symphony hall in the in the program and the brief at the moment and the, I think one of the strategic questions is what happens to the current um, concert hall in Hong Kong which is not that old it's very ugly but it's not that old so I guess one question that we were that came up in our discussions was um, is there enough art to fill all of these spaces um, without relying, without continuing, continuing to rely on foreign artists coming in? Um, also, the education system in Hong Kong is slightly lacking. In it's arts. slightly lacking, I would say. Um, so, but is you, there any mention of beefing up the conservatory well, and the arts programs there to cultivate? Can I just go back to something earlier you said, which I thought was really interesting, which is basically you said that Hong Kong was a financial center and a commercial center and a retail center, but doesn't, isn't, as it were, known for its artistic um, offering particularly well. So, um, uh, so, is, so, in a sense, the cultural strategy, is that what part of the cultural strategy is. Part of the cultural strategy is to try and build the cultural or artistic identity of the city so that it at least matches to some extent the very strong financial and, um, uh, and commercial profile. I mean, is, is that what part of this is about? Need to live there, or what artists need to create work, 
before you would come there to create work? So it's very, very top down? Yes. Ling Tang, you're nodding. Go. Yes. Go on. I mean, it's really top down. It's like, um, it's like my argument is like whether they really research about the market. It's like that's something. All right, we talked about that a bit the other day. Do you want to expand that that okay. point? Um, and um, I'm currently actually actually like researching a project in mainland China. It's um, Guangzhou Opera House, which is only 100 miles away from Hong Kong, and it's in mainland and it's designed by a famous UK architect, um, Zaha Hadid, and um, um, it just opened in May. So it's like a huge government supported uh, project, and it's like 1.4 million um, Chinese dollars, and it covers about 70,000 um, square meters, including one big opera house, as well as several other multi-purpose theaters. So um, the argument would be the Chinese central government wanted to establish like a strategy to create like a golden triangle to have to create three main cultural centers. Where? Um, Beijing, Shanghai, and Guangzhou. And Beijing? Beijing in north, Shanghai in the east, and the Guangzhou in the south. So this is the central government's strategy. And um, by building like those huge projects and by putting a lot of money into it, and the Guangzhou one is like the one closest to Hong Kong. And uh, they really wanted to draw the audience from Hong Kong area. Because a lot of times, when the cultural productions go to Asian countries, they might only reach to Hong Kong because of the lack of transparency with the cultural policy in the mainland. So that's why those productions, it's really hard for them to reach the mainland. OK, but let me ask, ask a question. If, if the cultural strategy of mainland China is basically to build up the <coughs> cultural um, infrastructure in Beijing, Shanghai, and uh, Guangzhou. Mm -hmm. What is Hong Kong doing? It's, yeah, that's fighting to keep up. Want to keep. I mean, like, you wanted to fight with the central government. I mean, um, but it's also right. interesting because now Hong Kong is part of China whether the central government has also wanted to give some autonomy to Hong Kong area. So, what, so really what you're looking at is Hong Kong's attempt to assert itself and its long-term identity in the face of competition, which is, as it were, a, a strategy from mainland China with which it is to some extent in conflict. Right. I think that's right. Uh, I think that's right. And if you look at, if you look at what, uh, if you look at what the strategy is, this is clearly a Hong Kong strategy, not a China strategy. I think. I mean, that's what it looks like. That's what it looks like to me, anyway. Um, uh, and mind you, there are a lot of people. This area is very, very densely populated. Correct. There are a lot. If you, the cities are, uh, if if you look at the demographics of this area, it's densely populated and it's growing. So, certainly West Kowloon is premised on people coming from mainland China to uh, to visit it. 
Um, and I assume, as you say, this is premised on um, uh, uh, Hong Kong visitors right. as part of its demographic. It, that may be plausible. It may be that they're entirely, as it were, it may be that the critical mass is such that, that there is room <coughs> for them. And Guangzhou, it is the cultural destination. It's one of the um, cities that has a long history of cultural attractions. So that would be disadvantage for Hong Kong. They have a competition. Um, so, but, but I, all right, so that was one point. I just wanted to sort of tease that one out, which is that there is this interesting, as it were, competition between, uh, and I think Singapore is somewhere in that competition too. In other words, Singapore is also aspiring to that sort of gateway, that, that, that gateway status, and, uh, and is using culture as, uh, as part of that strategy. The Esplanade being the obvious, uh, the most obvious example, which is a very large-scale performing arts centre, which is now just beginning a, a further expansion, building more theatres, um, uh, and clearly uh, um, aimed at both local community, but also very aggressively at uh, international tourist trade. Um, so, okay. So your next point was um, it's very top. It's very top-down. Is there any other way of doing it? What would you do? In other words... Well, I think you come up with some funding that... that but, all right. So, all right. Let me, let me ask a related question. Uh, it strikes me when you read the, the literature that there is... They do nothing but consult. In other words, it's a, it's a, it, it looks like a massively consultative process. It looks as if Hong Kong has spent the last decade consulting in one form or another. So um, is that very top-down, what's going on there? This looks like the most participative cultural strategy you've ever seen. And what's more, all those reports end up online, in the public domain. Yeah, who's going to talk to this? Yeah, go. <coughs> okay, hang on then, just hang on. I was just going to say that it feels very unorganic in the sense that they're trying to force it to happen. Whereas, I, and I'm sure they have looked at this, but is there really a need for such an expansive strategy? Wouldn't it make more sense to start off in a smaller, more modest uh, fashion and then grow it over time? It just seems trying to do everything at once is not necessarily the most productive way to approach this. It's very high risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. So it's a, it's a and um, from what we were saying about Bill Bao, there are questions about whether the basic conditions are there in terms of the, the vitality of, of um, uh, cultural life in Hong Kong specifically. Yes, yeah, one, two. Well, I, I was going to comment on the, uh, the consultative process. Yeah. Um, I, I'm kind of curious about who participated, and um, and you know the articles that are posted online are all in English. Um, uh, no, no, not all in English, but a lot of them. Are. Uh, oh, I, I don't know. I mean, majority of the population really don't speak or use English as uh, as kind of their lingua franca. So um, it, it's just kind of questionable um, in terms of you know the technocrats uh, determining kind of doing this, going through their own process and whether it, it really involved 
uh, the population. Um, and the other comment I was going to make was um, it seems like there's a lot of talk about building kind of the hard infrastructure, but really no consideration for, uh, for, uh, the soft, for the content. Yeah, for the soft infrastructure, um, both um, audience and production ones. Uh, any, yeah. Well, and maybe all of the consulting is actually a system, a symptom of a lack of consensus on what actually needs to be, what people want, and what, what needs to be done, and how to do it. You know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult to generalize, but in the project that I worked on, which was related, related to this, for about 10 years now, there has been a very detailed brief for the configuration of the buildings. And, um, uh, and it's changed a little bit, but basically about number of theaters, forming art space, uh, museum space, contemporary gall gallery space, and what was called OCAF, which other cultural and arts facility, which is the, 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 the cultural industries component in between. I could never get to the bottom of where that brief had come from. In other words, I couldn't get to the bottom of the, the demand, any, any sense of the demand analysis or um, needs analysis, if you like, that had led to that. It became a sort of uh, what Marx is called reified. It became this sort of thing that existed, the brief. And the brief has not changed that much for West Carolina Cultural District over the interim 10 years. And I, and I think that that's a really um, important issue, which is, yes, there is a consultative process, but the consultative process doesn't seem to have engaged with the profound, you know, it's engaged with how, but it's never really engaged very deeply with what. In other words, how that then maps back to some sort of fundamental need or expressed vision for the community. And I think that's a problem because that's, to me, the source of the debate about its legitimacy as a project, which is how is it grounded in, how, what is the relationship between the project and a larger vision? You know, so you, your first uh, observation, which is what's the relationship between this and this? I think you asked straight, you know, is, are the means related to the ends? I think the answer is, at the moment, it, that relationship is under-articulated. Um, Hong Kong's not that segmented. I mean, the expatriate population is small. I mean, they're mostly, uh, they mostly live in Hong Kong Island, uh, hence the, the whole point about people that live in Hong Kong Island not really going across to the other side of Hong so, Kong that much, because the mass, the land mass is on the other side, and the population. In the new territories. Kowloon side and then plus like kind of the, the larger area. Um, but you're right about the, ex I mean, what's unique about the expatriates population is that they're extremely transient. Um, I mean, New York is nothing compared to how transient uh, that uh, expat uh, kind of like demographic and also how people move in and out and they get sent around just like in, in, in minutes notice. So you actually, it's I think, I think it's challenging to if they're trying to cultivate an audience from that population because once they leave, if they're going back to Dubai or South America, they're not coming back. So their core audience is ultimately going to be either locals or uh, regional, um, I think, audiences. Um, so I wouldn't be, uh, yeah, I think, 
I think that's right. But my, my sense is that much more consideration, West Kowloon specifically, much more consideration has been given to pure urban planning than it has to how those spaces will ultimately be animated through the cultural offering. And the danger is clearly that um, if the physical side runs ahead of the software side, then you end up with infrastructure that is misfitted to, um, misfitted to, the, to the cultural purposes to which it's put. So the only thing I would say is that there is a strong, if I were the, if I were the person running it, I would want as much flexibility for as long as possible in terms of the brief. However, the reality is that the architectural side of it is now very advanced. Uh, the, the master architect, who's Norman Foster, has now been working on it for, I don't know, six or seven years off and on. Um, and uh, uh, they have just only just appointed uh, an executive director for the project. Um, and uh, he is a program guy. He's a Brit, um, interestingly. The last, they, they appointed somebody else. Who knows that story? They appointed somebody from Disney um, Hong Kong as a chief executive. And he left three days after he started. Um, and, it, and that was actually you know, fairly big sort of um, debacle in a way. And that set the project back. They have now appointed the guy who is number two, the head of programming at the Barbican in London. And he is a great programmer. And he understands absolutely um, issues relating to uh, the relationship between spaces and, um, uh, spaces and activities. But my fear is that, you know, well, he may understand that, but whether he understands the operating environment into which he's moving um, is another question because it's such a, you know, it, it, it's a tough operating environment, highly politicized, and he will have to have a very strong idea of how he wants those spaces to change fairly early in the process. So, um, so it's, an, you know, it's an interesting project to observe, and the thing about it is I agree that a lot of the, um, uh, a lot of the, consultation looks like pseudo-consultation, but equally, um, a lot of the, uh, uh, where there is pseudo-consultation, there's also a, you know, a loud public debate around it, sort of calling it to account. And so it's a great story to follow. This story, you know, it's a great story to follow over the next um, decade or so as it comes into, uh, is it, as it comes into existence. Um, it is, I think, the major cultural preoccupation in Hong Kong. Anybody who goes to Hong Kong who's in the cultural sector, you end up talking about West Kowloon Cultural District pretty rapidly. The danger is that it, uh, it uses all the time, all the money, all the sort of emotional reserves, if you like, of Hong Kong. And it's only part of, I mean, clearly West Kowloon is only part of the totality of Hong Kong. And if it, if it becomes, as it were, the sole focal point for Hong Kong's cultural activity and cultural preoccupation and cultural resources, one of the questions is what happens to the rest of, the Hong, rest of Hong Kong? And so arts organizations are concerned about basically are they in or are they out? Are they going to be part of this, you know, are they going to be part of this strategic redevelopment and relocate? Or um, are they going to feel like they've been shut out of the castle in some way? Okay, other observations on Hong Kong? Success? What will success look like? What do you think? What do I think about it? Uh, I think that you're absolutely right. I think it's overscaled. Um, 
And I think that the hardware has run ahead of the software. Um, I think it's kind of exciting, but it's exciting in a sort of um, frightening way. You know what I mean? In other words, there's something, there's something totally exotic about this, trying to do something on this scale. It's absolutely Herculean. Um, and to that extent, it's kind of engaging because it's just such a big adventure. But I think that the, the prospects of, uh, you know, the prospects of getting it wrong when you try to do, you know, it doesn't feel to me like a mature cultural strategy. It, you know, a mature cultural strategy takes a long-term view and says, okay, this is what we're going to do. Um, let's, uh, let's have an incremental phased approach. Now, it may be that's where they'll end up. It may be that this is all the sort of pre-planning, um, you know, uh, drama and that as they actually move ahead, it will move ahead as an incremental project in phases and at the end of each phase, as it were, stock will be taken of the appropriateness of the subsequent phases. One of the reasons that that was very difficult to do in the original proposition is that the original proposition involved a massive, massive canopy that was approximately the shape of a dragon with massive stilts being built over the whole thing. This was, uh, I don't know whether any, any you see, saw, uh, seen images of it, but it's an extraordinary structure that Norman Foster planned. Norman Foster has, is, um, has read The Fountainhead, Ayn Rand, The Fountainhead, you know, the sort of Nietzschean-driven um, architect. Well, that was based on um, Frank Lloyd Wright, I think, but, you know, Norman Foster has all those attributes, and this is, you know, this is absolutely the sort of things that he, he, you know, he does uh, uh, consummately well, but it introduces a degree of influence. This is so large that there are issues around its own microclimate, you know, uh, that it created. Um, uh, this has been broken down a little, I think, in the, but what this did was force you to do it all at once, force you to do it as a meta strategy. Um, and I think that that's why he enjoyed, you know, that, that was probably part of his intent, architectural intent. But I think that the danger from the point of view of a successful cultural strategy is that it forces you exactly to do it all at once. Uh, uh, whereas an incremental phased approach, less Herculean, less dramatic though, though it is, has probably got a much greater opportunity for you to you know, learn as you go along and also build demand as you go along. So um, uh, my hope is that it becomes a longer, you know, the longer it takes, the, I mean, ironically, the longer it takes, the better it will be. I know that sounds weird, but it is true in this case, because the longer it takes, the more thought will be given <coughs> to the relationship between supply and demand and all the boring things we've been talking about all week. Okay. Um, Europe. Um, Is there a European cultural strategy? Should there be one? The Minister of Culture for Hungary clearly thinks that there should be. Was it Hungary? Yeah, yeah Hungary. I think a cultural policy. Sorry? I think there's a cultural policy. Okay, go. Tell us. It's a little bit complicated to explain. It's complicated. Uh, God, it's complicated. In our beginning, but first, because we read this very quickly, at least myself, and then we met together, and we didn't reach any conclusion. But you, most yeah. of you know all the stuff anyway, so. Because there are people from different backgrounds. Uh, okay. So I think uh, before we should, uh, it's complicated because of the, 
of the institutional structure of the European Union and the particularities of the decision-making process. So maybe, I don't know, maybe it's too technical, but in the European Union there is what we call the reserve powers of the European Union institutions, the shared powers between the European member states and the European Union, and then the powers that are of the European Union member states. So originally, uh, culture was not uh, uh, a European Union policy. Originally, uh, so culture was not part of, na uh, in, of transnational European policy. Mm -hmm. It was not part of the founding documents of the European Community. And by culture, what do you mean? In this context, uh, you mean the arts, or you mean? They are all different kind of context. Culture in the arts, also culture as uh, creative industries. I think there were some messages to right. culture as identity. The focus was on economic and social integration, not on cultural integration. And also, another uh, name that what do we mean by culture is important to name that you think some of the difficulties that uh, this European Union found in thinking about cultural policy was basically definitions because they couldn't get to any agreements in reaching which was their definition of either national, either cultural, or even they were not even able to compare the different cultural policies because they were not using the same instruments or... Right, that longer um, thesis by the... Was she, where was she from, Serbian? I can't remember. Yes. Was kind of... Sorry? Croatian. Croatian. Um, was kind of depressing. Um, because, you know, uh, it, uh, uh, but it, it, it's, if you read a lot of the literature on national cultural policies, it all starts like that. It all, all goes through a long, long process of sort of a priori reasoning about what definitions are used and then, all, and then how difficult it is to get any consensus around those definitions. But what, what I think that... She, you know, she spent, you know, part of her, a good part of her thesis about, is about definitional wrangles around what constitutes culture. But it's not surprising uh, at all. It's, it's, it's entirely predictable. And if I were a, if I were um, a leader of European integration, like Monet in the post-war period, I would, uh, I would keep the hell out of the way of trying to deal with cultural integration for exactly that reason. I mean, it seems to me unsurprising that it's taken, that it, that, that it, you know, it's taken, several chapters of the European uh, iterations of the development of the European Union before culture got anywhere near the agenda because I would, you know, I'd suggest that for most, most pragmatic politicians they would go like that for exactly that reason. How different is it from federal government in the states? In other words, it's clear that federal government in the states doesn't have an overt cultural policy, but there are all sorts of things that are done at federal level that aggregated look like an implicit cultural policy. In other words, they have the same impact. There are rules around copyright, there's rules around um, passage of cultural objects, there's rules around tax laws, etc., that cumulatively have an impact on uh, 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 the cultural life of America. Is the European Union any different from that?
Although he says there are layers, doesn't he? Say, he said, you know, it's perfectly uh, possible for somebody to think of themselves first as Welsh, second as British, third as European, and fourth as a sort of citizen of the world. And that, uh, that's his argument, isn't it? That these aren't contradictory identities. They are sort of somehow stacked on top of one another. Right, and they're basically yeah, all that list that we put up last week on the left hand, on the right hand side of the board about what the instruments of policy are, um, they're all there operated at European level. And there's no a pillar of cultural policy, and there was a pillar for justice and home affairs and foreign and security policy. Okay. Yeah, I thought I thought his his speech was kind of interesting because it was a it was a confident clarion call for a cause that very few people are likely to espouse, and the, the, the cause is that there that there is great benefit in a greater centralization and an explicit articulation of a European cultural policy, and then he listed all those reasons that, you know, about economic development, about, you know, the knowledge economy, about all those things that we've been talking about at city level. He's actually um, uh, uh, using exactly the same set of instrumental arguments at really, you know, uh, transnational level. So I guess... The Minister of Culture. Yeah. So my, my question is, do, does any, do any of those resonate for people? Do you think, yeah, he, you know... Yes, it's because of the need to create uh, um, European identity. Uh, because there's in Europe that kind of democratic um, deficit, uh, for example, there's the elections in the European Parliament and the participation is very low. And maybe the, this participation is very low because people don't adhere to the European idea. They don't feel the idea of being part of Europe. There's a lack of democracy. So building up uh, European identity, cultural identity, is part of this process, and that's why he tries to mention all these arguments, which are rather instrumental arguments for instrument as a tool of uh, foreign security policy, culture as a tool for development policy. For uh, and he says something interesting. Interesting that he says that culture is a bridge between the tension between cohesion and competitiveness, which is a tension between competitiveness and and, co <coughs> and cooperation. Cohesion. Social cohesion. So, uh, social cohesion. For Europe, uh, we say that Europe is the unique model that combines both cohesion and competitiveness. So he tries to use instrumental arguments in order to push for the idea of uh, supranational uh, European cultural policy. But the final aim is the political aim to contribute to the creation of the European idea. Okay. So, um, so what's he wanna, what's he want us to do? Well, in other words, these are all the arguments for a pan-European cultural policy. 
what what would it be? There would be need to establish more clearly what would be the competencies of the member states and what would be the competencies of the European Union. Okay, but what might what might lie with the European Union that doesn't currently? I mean, it seems to me like short of saying that we should fund culture and art more as a, like a cultural policy. I don't know what else mm -hmm. different states, different countries could agree on, and I think. It seems to me like, I didn't read all those articles, but it seems to me like the idea of culture is that it is different and that there are distinctions. And so I don't know, I don't know how you could even begin to create a cultural policy across all these different countries. And I think, I think the, the idea of cultural policy in Europe is more related to promoting uh, diversity, uh, transnational projects, um, exchange of best practices and ideas. I think it's more related to creating Europe, more than funding projects. Right. That might open up discourse without. Uh, the idea that I think when we talk about cultural policy, European cultural policy is more related to building up Europe, is that in the European Commission there was a separation, and uh, there is the Director General of Education and Culture, and then there is the Director General Audiovisual. So audiovisual is not considered Audiovisual, as yeah. So I think maybe it's, uh, it shows that when we talk about European cultural policy, the aim of this cultural policy is more diplomatic. Yeah, uh, I guess so. But I think what he's saying is that there are currently national divergences in legislation that affects cultural life, from the implementation of copyright laws to um, tax laws, etc. And it seems to me that it, it seems to me that his argument for cultural policy is part of a larger argument for deeper European legislative integration. And that he's sort of using, he would, if he were talking about any policy, basically he's trying to make a case for a, for a federal state of Europe. And that cultural policy is just alongside all other policies, that if you believe in a federal state of Europe, then you want, to reg you want these uh, issues regulated at European level. It didn't strike me that he. It didn't strike me that, that for all the rhetoric, that there was a very powerful, as it were, fine-tuned instrumental argument for why these th these should be determined at federal as opposed to state level, beyond the argument that federalists employ about Europe more generally outside of the context of cultural policy. Does it have anything to do with Yeah, uh, he, you know, he's got an argument in there. I mean, the for me, there's a hiatus in the argument. I mean, I don't know other people should join in, but for me, for me, the the gap in the argument is, yeah, he's saying that we sh there should be policies to stimulate creativity by encouraging uh, knowledge-based industries, but it's not clear to me why that should be a federal responsibility as opposed to a state responsibility or a local responsibility. 
Um, uh, and indeed, from what we, you know, what we've been looking at, it strikes me that it's extraordinarily difficult to implement those sorts of policies at a, you know, national level. Never mind a pan-national level. They seem to work much more effectively at a regional or city level. Just thinking about Europe and its, its deep traditions and history, it would seem really hard to um, get so many individual countries with a very long history to even agree on a, a policy governing everything. And, and I'm thinking well, about might. Yeah, go food, food and wine. You know, <coughs> I mean, the, just the nitpickiness around, you know, where a grape can come from to be called this or that or the other. I mean, it's, there are a lot of, of rules and regulations that seem to govern lots of part of European life. So to right. put these all into one big basket and have everyone be happy. But a lot of that legislation is European legislation. I mean, a lot of that legislation about, you know, whether you can call it champagne or not is not national law, it's now international law. I can't, I can't, um, make fizzy great wine in the south of England and call it champagne because that would be in breach not of, I mean, it'd be in breach of French law. I wouldn't care, but it would be in breach of European law. You see what I mean? In other words, there's already European law governing, you know, a, a lot of definitional territory around food. The other th question I have is, is the funding. Right. You know, and, and then how does the funding get distributed? Because, you know, not having read the articles because I read the bill about ones, I mean, I would think that a poorer state like Hungary might be all for this because then that means that they could access a larger fund pool from kind of the EU for their culture. Right. Uh, to Thomas's point about getting all the countries to agree on something, I, I'm just wondering if, if there's still some common ground just under the aegis of, of this being where you know, Western culture originated. I mean, just as just as with the NEA, patrimony in, in promoting jazz. You know, some states were much, much more affected by jazz than others, and yet the entire country can sort of agree that this is something that we can all lay claim to and be proud of. So I'm wondering, in that sense, and, and also the the comment even about, Ohio, yeah. even <laughs> Ohio, definitely. Uh, but even the, the comment about uh, making this available to to more Eastern countries, that sort of, that sort of uh, signifies this idea of this is something that originated from this landmass. This is something that, you know, even if there's so many uh, intricate sublevels, that still, from a, from, a, from a macrospective point of view, that it's still something we can all, you know, be proud of. Yeah. Um, so there are Go on. I, well, I, 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 for what it's worth, I agree with you. I think that um, I think it's about uh, uh, a larger argument for federal for for a federal Europe, and um, it's part of the larger. In other words, that if, if you're going to argue for federal Europe, what you're really uh, arguing for is a standardization, um, a greater standard rather than less standardization of the legislative framework between countries within the European community in areas that are, that are currently, there's a principle of subsidiarity. Does anybody know what the 
principle of subsidiarity is? Principle of subsidiarity is that um, within the European community, um, you should always, as a matter of principle, uh, uh, delegate a decision to the lowest level that is con uh, compatible with um, uh, the lowest level in the system that's compatible with uh, um, uh, equitable decision making. In other words, you shouldn't centralize what you don't need to centralize. Um, and um, basically, I think that the, his argument is, is a sort of is an argument not so much about a cultural policy as the case for a federal Europe. But um, uh, it's a, um, uh, you know, I think it's articulated, it's, it's articulated by him as well as anyone. In other words, if you don't buy that, you're not going to buy anybody else's argument either. You know, everything is related to everything else, but it doesn't mean that, you know, you can't make analytical distinctions and act on those distinctions. In other words, sure, the economic, the social, the political are all, you know, uh, connected to one another in very complicated ways. But it doesn't mean you can't have economic legislation or social legislation. It just means that you have to be aware that there is, you know, that there are impacts of one or the other. Most cultural policies are also economic policies. Many economic policies also have cultural repercussions. Um, all policy, you know, health policy has economic repercussions, economic policy has health repercussions. It doesn't mean that you can't attempt analytically to isolate the impacts on different domains. Um, I mean, my sense of, um, uh, my sense of, I mean, for what it's worth, my sense of a lot of that, a lot of the literature, and there is a vast literature on this. I mean, there's an intimidating academic literature on, uh, you, you, not just European policy, but national and transnational cultural policy, is that the ratio is that it is a dialogue amongst policy analysts, largely definitional and uh, quantitative in nature, um, that has very very little impact on uh, national policy making in any real sense, and that's really why I moved, you know, l last week fairly rapidly from from you know the the national creative and cultural industries arguments to the city level ones because I'm not sure I mean I think that most of this literature is about is about either it's about rhetoric for other purposes or it's literature about um, uh, it's literature about potentialities that are so far from being realized in any realistic policy making um, that they're unlikely to be um, you know relevant to policymakers it's a sort of you know academic sub-industry yeah. Related to that, uh, you said before the focus in Europe was on economic and social integration. Yeah. What, what does social integration mean in that context? Uh, common uh, social security laws, common employment laws, common health legislation, common um, uh, common uh, uh, legislation about retirement ages, common. Uh, you know, uh, in other words, it's the standardization of legislation affecting you know social issues. Uh, um, uh, unemployment provision, um, uh, free, uh, freedom of movement um, for uh, um, uh, individuals between states who can work in any state, etc. 
um, so that you know, if, if you're a European citizen, you can work in um, Greece and vice versa. Is that all in place now? That's all in place now, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, and that's been in place for member states since the inception. What, what this particular, uh, there was an expansion in 2005, I think, uh, and one of the debates about the European uni uh, uh, Union is, should the agenda be on deeper integration within a given number of states, or should it be about the expansion of the current um, uh, level of integration for a larger number of states? And the strategy generally has been to expand the domain. And the, uh, and the answer, for, you know, the reason for that is to some extent, expanding the domain is regarded by most national politicians as preferable to deepening integration within the current states. So you now you have a very, very large geographical area covered by the, uh, by the um, European Union with large discrepancies in basic economic and social conditions between them. So that makes uh, integration all the more challenging. Witness the, the, um, you know, the differential impact of, uh, of financial, um, uh, you know, of the run on the um, uh, euro uh, in the last few weeks, which has put sort of fundamental strain on the idea of an integrated European Union. For me personally, I, I have the impression that this um, the um, argument of this author is more like uh, advocacy than political analyze. Because just as you just mentioned, uh, he used the arguments defending um, the uh, cultural policy in a local level to a transnational level, and the, his argument is sounds always right. And um, I um. <coughs> At the beginning of our discussion, I, uh, I thought about the question if, um, well, if the basis um, to build, up, uh, build upon which a cultural policy, I mean transnational cultural policy within Europe uh, is a common, common language, for, uh, for example, or common, common, um, common values, yep. then why, sh why can't there also be a cultural policy internationally, globally? Because all humans have common values, and and um, it sounds to me that um, the need um, in the uh, status, status of the European uh, Union um, advocates is to um, is to uh, is to use the cultural policy to help the integration and to kind of fight against the in, uh, the um, impact of globalization. And that's uh, as they understand the Americanization. And um, it sounds like use the word or the concept of, of cultural policy as a arm to uh, for their um, for other um, for other, uh, purposes. I entirely agree. Mm -hmm. I entirely agree. Okay. I mean, yeah. Any any other uh, observations on? We've kind of trashed European cultural policy. Um, <laughs> anybody? Um, um, I wish there was, you know, there's no. Come on, are you a pan European? Kind of. Um, I personally have this, I think this is a personal feeling more than an actual statement. But it's, it's very difficult sometimes to talk about Europe as a holistic whole because we're all individual countries. And I feel like I come from like one of the smaller countries that's so divided by a language. Right. And the language is such do other people know? I mean, do you know Walloons and Flems and? Yeah, we, well, it's, it's Flanders, 
French part, and then we have the German part, and we have four different government systems. There's a lot of internal politics, like the cultural policies that direct the Flemish part are very different than the French part. So to, if we can't get countries, small countries to be on the same page, and regions to be on the same page, how can we get Europe to be on the same page? And I think it's it's a much, the system that I feel like it's going in is there's there should always be like an advisory board or there should be somebody who's trying to implement standards but not enforce those because you can't compare the culture, just the culture in general of the people in the Netherlands to Italy. So right. I think there's just And one of the things that small nations have looked to the European Union to do is to enforce their, to help to consolidate and recognize minority rights, like minority language rights, etc. The Welsh, the, um, uh, the, the, uh, the Gaeltacht, which is in Ireland, the area that still speaks Gaelic. A minority, in other words, to look to a supranational uh, convening authority to authorize, to legitimate your, you know, uh, unique cultural contribution when you're part of a, you know, larger landmass that doesn't necessarily recognize it. So that is one of the rationales for a pan-European sort of cultural policy, which is to recognize minority rights. Richard, just to say it sounds to me, it kind of reminds me then of, like you mentioned, you compared it to the American federal system, which is where you know, the US Constitution is basically, it protects minorities. Whatever right. but it its intention is to, what, yeah. Yeah, that's the intention, is to protect the little guy and not. It's one of the conditions of the new, of the candidate countries is the protection of uh, recognition of minority rights. Okay. Um, I'm trying to think of a heroic conclusion to this, and I must admit I can't think of a heroic conclusion to it. Um, uh, I suggest we, I suggest we, you know, stop a bit early today. We, it's the first time we've done it. Why not? Um, uh, tomorrow, cultural diplomacy, part of public diplomacy. Um, uh, we'll have Zarin here for uh, about um, about an hour, hour and a half, and the rest uh, uh, we should talk beyond, as it were, the, the New York Phil's example. Although. Um, uh, I know that Zarin is perfectly capable of talking, you know, more abstractly about cultural policy, extremely uh, elegantly. Um, uh, we can. Um, uh, I think that one of the things we should do is look at, you know, the, the the United States model, which is a much more direct control model, compared with. Um, it's funny because the United States, we've all agreed, has an implicit rather than explicit um, uh, cultural policy, but when it comes to cultural diplomacy. Cultural diplomacy is run straight out of the State Department uh, with no intermediate body. Um, uh, the European model is for most cultural diplomacy to be done at arm's length through um, uh, interim organizations like the British Council, like uh, the Alliance Francaise, like the Goethe Institute. Um, and um, one of the interesting questions is, you know, um, does tighter political control, as it were, negate the larger impact and intention? Um, so uh, it's kind of <coughs> rich territory. Try and uh, look at the readings if you can, if you haven't, because it will accelerate debate. Okay, thanks.
The preceding program was brought to you by Teachers College, Columbia University. Please visit us online at itunes.tc.columbia.edu.